recorded on location at Aspen Ideas Health in Aspen, Colorado. He leads one of the nation's largest and most respected integrated academic health system in the nation. Mount Sinai Health System is based in New York City and has worldwide influence. Today, we'll learn how he is using his authority. Our guest today, Dr. Kenneth Davis, CEO of Mount Sinai Health System, which operates eight hospital campuses and is recognized for its excellence in patient care, in research and education. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Dr. Davis, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Great to be with you. Guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, one area we know uh, you and Mount Sinai are focused in on is population health. Wonder if you could just describe to our listeners what's your approach of building a scalable, sustainable uh, population healthcare model. Fine. Um, what population health is is the ability to be paid by your insurance companies ahead of time, um, and then whatever money you can save is profit to the hospital. So it's kind of a, a big contract for a large population of patients who you have to take care of. Uh, essentially what they're telling you is in population health is we want your patients to stay well. Yeah. Because if your patients stay well, you're not gonna use all this money that we're giving you ahead of time. So we're encouraging you, we're motivating you, we're rewarding you to keep your patients healthy. That is quite different from the system we're on now, which is a fee-for-service system, yeah. which means every time people get sick, we get paid. And we get paid the most when people get sick the longest. Um, so it changes the system, turns everything upside down. It tells your doctor, do everything you can to keep this patient well. Um, and it has to change then the reward systems for what they get. Now, to our surprise, it has not taken off as much as we thought it would. Hmm. It seems to be somewhat difficult for the doctors to want to join programs like this. And patients sometimes don't feel all that comfortable, perhaps. Um, and insurance companies haven't been all that comfortable in contracting around these issues. Mm -hmm. So we're still stuck for the most part in our old fee-for-service system as much as we sit down with the insurance companies and say, let's see if we can design a value-based population health contract. So really thinking about uh, communications, both to providers, to uh, patients, and to uh, payers uh, about how this model will work as part of the, right. of the work that you have to do in terms of selling the, selling the project. Right, and making everyone think that this is in their interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if I can, this is obviously something that is uh, front and center for everybody in healthcare. Hospital admissions and readmissions is a quality measure, not just a cost measure. Uh, we see it in Medicaid. Medicare is looking to move uh, all of its uh, patients into some kind of value-based program within the next several years. And, and one would think, what's, uh, what's the expression my father would say, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? The things that you are doing are things that we would want to do for anybody to prevent them from being admitted or readmitted. Maybe share with us a little bit, what are you doing? What have you found to be the strategies that are most successful? Doesn't happen just by the docs, right? It's the discharge planners, community people. What have you found is your strategies that really achieve that goal of lower uh, admissions and readmissions? Well, 
It's a very hard question yeah. because we get some of the very most sick patients. Uh-huh. And when you get very, very sick patients, it can be out of your control around readmissions. Mm-hmm. People who are immunosuppressed, um, people who are very elderly, compromised, many comorbidities. So you do the best you can. Um, what is the best we can? We need to incentivize our doctors so that instead of their benefit being seen as if I see more patients and I have more turnover, um, I'm going to have more money. Um, The more I do, the more I get. Mm -hmm. Instead, it has to be if I keep these patients well, then I'm going to get a bigger bonus. What does that mean for them? That means they have to do a lot more outreach. You have to be a lot more preventive. You have to make sure that your patients are taking their medications, that they're going to their appointments, that they're following their right diets, Mm -hmm. that perhaps they're exercising when they should be. So you suddenly even have to engage in sociodemographic factors that are somewhat difficult for you to control, but you've got to do the best you can to do that. Um, And it's depending on the illness and the compliance of the patient can be very difficult. Um, but we have to change the way patients and doctors think about things this way. Mm-hmm. Well, you're orchestrating so much in your system. One element is this Institute for Health Equity Research. I'm wondering how that's driving to improve uh, uh, efforts for demographic uh, collection, educational okay. research, uh, and are others looking to your work as a model? Well, let me speak to that. It's important. We hear so much about this. Mount Sinai Hospital lives at the juxtaposition of the richest and poorest zip codes in America. Mm -hmm. Our hospital spans those. Our commitment is to give everybody the same level of care. That's a big challenge. Mm -hmm. When some people are coming in and your hospital is being paid 250% of Medicare, and on the other side, the Medicaid patients, you're losing 50 cents in every dollar. And you want everybody to be treated the same way. But it also reflects the fact that we have an incredibly diverse patient population that we see. We know that patients are more compliant with the ethnic groups that treat them if they're the same ethnic group. Um, So what does that really mean for us? That means we must have a diversity of physicians, of nurses, of technicians that reflect our communities. Hard to do. Hard, hard to do in the midst of the post-pandemic. Well, yes, but hard to do because there's not a lot of people who've been trained mm-hmm. for what we need. For instance, we know that if you have a black male doctor, that doctor will get his patients who are black to be much more compliant. Finding black male applicants to medical schools is not that easy. Um, So what we've done, and this is encouraged by our diversity, equity, inclusion group, is to reach out now to a lot of the public schools in the area and begin to connect to kids at a young age and get them involved in our hospital and in our laboratories and see that this is a great path forward for you. This is exciting work. You can do this. Um, And we're going to stay with those kids. in high school, junior high school, I'm sorry, high school, college, and encourage them to be in our medical school because we we just know we have a deficiency there. Um, It's something that we think is very important, but it's not easy. Um, 
I think, uh, Margaret, remind me who we had on maybe coming into the AMA, the new incoming president had indicated that from when he was entered, there were only 5% of the physicians. The, pres physici the president of Morehouse. More, uh, sorry, mm -hmm. the president yeah. of Morehouse, who indicated when he became a physician, 5% of the physicians were black, and that hadn't changed mm -hmm. uh, over the years. It's, uh, it certainly hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, and it may be even a little bit worse. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a, a it's a certainly a strategy we have to begin today. And I was glad to see uh, one of the 10 bright ideas that were talked about yesterday was that wonderful emergency room physician. I don't know if you heard that session, I should say, here at the Aspen uh, uh, Aspen Ideas uh, event, uh, talking about reaching out, uh, treating uh, potential uh, candidates with the early respect and recognition that we need to. But on the path to that, and when you think about it today, I'm, I'm still wrapping my arms around uh, the environment you live in is, as you said, both the intersection of rich and poor, probably one of the most diverse areas in the United States. And when I think of population health anyway, uh, hundreds of populations within that, your maternity patients, uh, for example, your patients who have chronic psychiatric illness or substance use disorders, your patients who are homeless, as well as your very uh, elderly patients who may more likely be in Medicare Advantage plans that are going to do some of this work for you, possibly around addressing social determinants of health. You're running an enormous system. How have you uh, organized uh, your population health teams in addition to the uh, physicians who are caring for them to be doing this work for you? It's enormous effort to be in contact with people and uh, making these strategies work. Yes, it takes a lot of outreach. And that can be by phone, now that could be by Zoom, or that could be by directly knocking on the door. Mm -hmm. And our challenge is for a lot of that work, a lot of that proactive work um, in a fee-for-service model, there is no reward. Um, so why do I even mention that? I mention that because in psychiatric care, where we certainly don't have anybody talking a lot about population health, we have a lot of recidivism. And we have to address that by going out and finding out, is this patient taking their meds? If they didn't come in for their visit, why didn't they come in for their visit? How are we going to make sure they come back for their visit? Um, if we don't have that cooperation, that connectedness, we lose. Mm -hmm. And then they get relapsed. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get penalized for readmission. Right. <laughs> But we do um, have a natural experiment, as you've said, the Medicare Advantage plans, right? They get reimbursed based on the complexity of the patient and they keep the differential largely if patients do better, if they have less expense on the medical side and they invest more on the social side. And yeah. uh, you also have a large, as you said, Medicaid population. Has the state of New York, have you seen innovation around okay. adopting no. some of those measures? No. I only wish what you said about Medicare Advantage was true. Mm -hmm. The reality about Medicare Advantage and the insurance companies have taken it up is that they've nearly doubled the number of denials that we've seen over the last two years. But you were talking about the psychiatric uh, issues of people who are in the system, but we're seeing this emerging youth mental health problem in this country. Uh, people who aren't in the system, but are really facing enormous challenges. And that's another challenge that you have in your system. Talk to us a little bit, a bit about your thoughts of how we start to tackle this. No one institution uh, can do it alone. It requires a, a, a community approach. Well, obviously you've got to put healthcare workers, mental health workers in the schools. Right. Very hard to do. There aren't enough mental health workers to come around, and yet there's very little budgeting 
for that kind of thing. You're lucky you got a school nurse, let alone, you know, a school social worker, psychologist, or referral to a psychiatric system. So a lot of mental health issues that are existing in the school will just pass, will not be either identified or people will turn their back to it Mm because there's nothing they can do about it. Mm -hmm. And the families are working so hard or in other cases are so, you know, torn apart that they're not seeing this until it's too late and they don't get us to the care soon enough. Well, you know, I want our listeners to know that in addition to being a leader of a hospital system, you're a neurobiologist um, uh, conducting pioneer research that led to FDA to approve four of the five uh, five first drugs uh, treating Alzheimer's disease. It was interesting, we had a conversation with the head, uh, the leads of uh, ARPA-H today, who are also looking at this issue of how do you cure cancer and Alzheimer's. Not easy. What, what's your sense on the Alzheimer's side, uh, the, the, the work that we need to do, and you really are a leader in this field. Well, I was until I became the CEO. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I used to do a lot of that work and work in schizophrenia. Um, it's if somebody had told me that the first drug that I gave to an Alzheimer's patient, which was probably about 1976, um, that we would still those would still basically be the drugs that we use today, 40 plus years later, right. I'd be astonished. Yeah, part of the reason is. The Alzheimer's community has fallen in love with the amyloid hypothesis, and everything that they've tried to do has been to clear amyloid. It's been difficult to do, and even when they do it, it hasn't produced the results that they wanted. So we need to think through other ways that this system may be going badly. More recently, there's been some awareness that it might be that microglia aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing to clear the brain. So this amyloid accumulates. We've got to encourage microglia to do a better job. And that's a whole different group of drugs. We're going to have to target them in a different way. Um, so it's been disappointing. The the ESI the biogen drugs that have recently been approved, it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still nothing like what we need. We have to remember that Alzheimer's disease starts in your brain 25 years before you have symptoms. We can identify those changes that are going on in the brain now, but what we don't have is a drug to do anything about it. It would be like, you'd like to think, you know, we lower cholesterol, we lower triglycerides so that we don't have a cardiac event. Mm -hmm. What we'd like to think about is what do we have to do to maybe make those microglia start to work 25 years before people are symptomatic? People haven't conceptualized Alzheimer's disease that way about what are we going to do for prevention when people are asymptomatic? Um, So we intervene later. Um, And the interventions, you know, we gain a little, we slow progression a little bit. Some drugs are better than others, uh, but it's still frustrating. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly uh, focused your clinical work in very challenging areas. And I know in addition to Alzheimer's, schizophrenia was one of those areas. And we, we mentioned that before in terms of a population that's just so challenging. And we've lived through, uh, we've been around a long time. We lived through the deinstitutionalization yep, yep, in the yep. 80s and the attempts at community. but. Uh, Certainly progress has been made in terms of community supports, but in terms of uh, truly effective treatment for schizophrenia, comment on that as well. Um, I'm going to answer your question with a little aside. Good. Um, we just opened a center in downtown Brown Hudson Yard, Soho, Blow Soho, called Rivington. This is a complete psychiatric facility. 
cost us $140 million to build this. Why would we spend $140 million on behavioral health when that service line loses $23 million a year, right? Sounds a little crazy from the P&L point of view. Not really? to us, but we, we... <laughs> Well, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very bad business we're in. We did it because we knew that psychiatric care had to change and we wanted to have a new model to change it in. And that model was a place where patients would go for all their psychiatric care, from inpatient to partial hospitalization to outpatient to our reaching out to them. So in one, one building, we have all the f services we need, but here's what that also makes possible. The nature of psychiatric disease is often not to build good relationships. Mm -hmm. It's not to trust. trust. So yeah. every time you change a treatment team, patient thinks, oh no, I don't know if I can, do I really want to go to see them again? Oh man. But if you can be with the same team from the time you first enter our facility forevermore and develop a trust and a relationship, it's going to lead to better compliance. And we know that it's all about compliance and making people not be readmitted and relapse. Mm -hmm. We know that if you take your medication, your chance with schizophrenia, chronic, your chance of being readmitted in a year is about 20%. If you don't take your medication, your chance is 80%. Right, wow. right. Or jail, or worse. Uh, yeah, or worse. Exactly. And Or be on the street. Yeah. Um, so we want to have a constant treatment team that people can grow, patients can grow to trust so that perhaps we can get better compliance and better outcome. And that's why because I'm a psychiatrist and our dean's a psychiatrist and we've lived this and we've seen the bad things that we do in psychiatry and how we want to improve them, that we spent this $140 million so that we could have a new model of healthcare and hopefully it's gonna make a difference. Well, that sounds great and it sounds like it will make a difference. Uh, speaking on the psychiatric side, I know the US uh, uh, Veterans Affairs has uh, done some trials on psychedelics to treat uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Our military faced such an enormous uh, issue with this. Uh, people had been going to Mexico and coming back and saying, hey, we need relief. It's a complicated one. You talked about a p and uh, uh, It really requires two therapists, uh, eight hours uh, for four days to do this. Not really, uh, there's not a cost structure in it, but maybe just talk about the intervention itself and, and, well, and the model. Well, I don't know that much about it. Yeah. Rachel Yehuda in our Department of Psychiatry is a leader in this area. Yeah. And she's a very strong believer that this can make a difference. Yeah. Um, and I read a lot of her work right after 9-11. Uh, she did a lot of the PTSD work. Yes. Uh, that was very impressive work. Yes. And, and she is a very good scientist. Yes. So when somebody of her stature is as committed to psychedelics as she is, we have to believe that there's something there. And what we need now is good science behind it so that we really know who will benefit, how much you should give, when you should give it. These are all the questions that have to be resolved. And they're going to only be resolved if we you know, fund it with good NIMH money. You know, you have the uh, you have all the clinical issues, the leadership issues, the financial issues, and then these social issues also arrive uh, yeah, on your plate. And we think of the Dobbs decision uh, and the impact on women's reproductive health care, on the health care providers who care for women, on the, the fears. Uh, 
the choices that women may need to make to move out of state, that providers may need to make not to practice or to practice in a state. Has that also landed uh, on your shores at Mount Sinai? What's the conversation going on there? Well, um, I'll tell you about a conversation that I've had with some of my people around this issue in which I talk about the hypothetical GYN who does abortion medications in New York State and now has been asked either by telemetry, you know, telemedicine mm -hmm. or through the mail that somebody in another state where it's outlawed right. would like them to send medications. And the hypothetical conversation goes like this. He or she talks to his spouse and says, you know, the right thing for me to do is to send these drugs out of state. We do it all the time in New York. We don't have a problem with it. It's the right thing to do. And the spouse says, and then you know what's going to happen to us? You want to put this whole family at risk? I can't let this happen. You can't do this. I don't care what they're telling you in the Congress. I don't care what they're telling you at Mount Sinai. I want you to be safe. And this is too dangerous. Yeah. So I don't know how much out-of-state prescribing there's really going to be. Yeah. Um, all I know is in New York State, we're still okay. Yeah. You know, a lot of things wash up on, on your shore and on your watch. Uh, we'd like to get your reaction to the pushback to the gender-affirming care pilot program in New York State. In fact, New York State is the first in the country to devote funds to improve access to care for transgender people. How are you navigating the criticisms? It is a difficult uh, waters to navigate, I'm sure. We are strongly in favor of the transgender program. We have, at one point, because we were some of the first in New York Manhattan metropolitan area to do this, we had a year waiting list. Um, there weren't enough surgeons to meet the demand. And when you meet these people, and when you talk to these people, what you know is what they say is, I knew I was the wrong gender from the time I was three exactly years old. Exactly right. right, exactly you, right. You never hear, I'm not sure. That's right. You know, all this baloney about, oh, you know, so many of them, then they change their mind, doesn't happen. Right. These are very dysphoric people who really need this help. And I'm proud that Mount Sinai has been a leader in doing this. Good for you. We appreciate that very much. Thank you. Um, we talked just, we glanced over COVID a little bit, and I, I really was, uh, I was moved that you found a positive uh, outcome of COVID in terms of, of that group, because I know it was probably uh, quite something to live through it. But I'm curious in terms of the impact on your uh, health system, your hospitals, uh, overall uh, staffing, uh, nursing workforce, uh, changes in uh, how people feel about work. They performed so incredibly, heroically, exceptionally well throughout the pandemic. Have things settled down? Do you feel there's a new normal? Are you struggling with staffing issues? Tell us about well, that. As you've probably heard, this led to the great resignation. Yes. So nurses, who were near retirement and watched some of their colleagues die, yeah. said, I can't do this. Yeah. I have to find a safer place to practice. Yeah. So they moved to other jobs in nursing. Um, other people in the healthcare system started to do the same thing. So it may be because they were afraid. It may be because they were near retirement. They said, I've had enough of this. But the reality is it left us with major staffing shortages. We brought in per diem nurses to meet up that 
difficulty. Um, we are now doubling the size of our nursing school so that we can have more graduates. But as of this moment, I could hire a thousand nurses. Um, to if you could find a thousand nurses. And I can't. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. So we have put in retention bonuses. Mm -hmm. We're doing everything we can to increase the number. We're trying to look at their workload and say, are there things that others could do so that they can be at the patient bedside more? Yes. Um, but there, it's, it's, it's changed. Everything yes. has changed. Yeah. I can't remember 15 years ago, 20 years ago when I took this job, Staffing shortages, yeah. you know, everybody yeah. wants to work in a hospital, you know, yeah. it's great. Yeah, we compete now. with you all the time for, for to get nurses into primary care. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to here at Aspen uh, connecting. There's an individual here uh, who apparently uh, is a real leader in the uh, recruitment of nurses who uh, says all her data suggests that if we can offer uh, career advancement, that people want to know that there's a career advancement within the organization, as well as the salary issues. And I think that uh, all important piece for people trying to figure out how they balance their lives. Uh, I would also say the immigration issues that uh, are really critical here because yeah. we just haven't addressed them. And it, you can sort of chart where we've gone, uh, you know, negative on allowing people to come in the country along with these shortages. This is 100% true. I brought the staffing shortage problem up to Chuck Schumer. He's very helpful in so many ways to us. And he said, swear on a first name basis, yes. he says, Ken, you know, I sponsored a bill decades ago that brought in all those Philippines and Southeast Asian nurses. And now we can't get bipartisan agreement to bring in all the people that we need. Imagine that. And they're needed in red states and blue states. Right, it's not, this it's should not. be bipartisan. Yeah. We keep focusing on the Mexican border and not realizing that we have staffing shortages that could be alleviated mm -hmm. if we open up our borders to these people who'd like to come in here, who are licensed, who are competent, come from Southeast Asia. Why not? Right. Why can't we get right. this done? And you know, we would argue the longer term play is the same as, as you spoke of with recruiting a more diverse physician workforce, starting in grade school, really nurturing people through academies, giving them work experiences. You know, I want to talk a little bit about mission and margin. And you've talked, I think, eloquently about the work that you've done on mission, the investments that you're doing. But you also need to have a margin. And you're credited with being uh, what's been called one of the largest financial turnarounds in academic medicine. Uh, our teaching hospitals are essential uh, to the healthcare sector. They're often financially troubled. What lessons can we share about how to strengthen teaching hospitals and hospitals? We have to make this a national issue, that reimbursement is inadequate in Medicaid across the country, barely adequate, if at all, in Medicare, and that the insurance companies, with their denials and denials and denials, are making it more and more difficult for us to have any kind of margin. When you add to that, labor shortages are causing us to have huge increases in our labor costs. Supply chain inflation is causing that to go through the roof as well. Drug shortages are another big problem. We're faced with, you know, really, really big problems, and they are going to have to be solved at a national level. You know, if you believe in equity and equality, then don't institutionally underfund Medicaid so much and then expect that everybody's going to be treated equally. Absolutely. The, um, um, you know, lots lots of things going on. I do do want to get back to workforce 
because you were also very focused in on that. What are some, one of the things we need to uh, have young people see, people like themselves early in their career, but are you running uh, at medical assistant levels or any other levels of trying to bring in people and train them? We're, we're doing it at every possible level yeah. because we're short in so many levels. Um, and I think we really need at a national level to address the question of why aren't there more slots in nursing schools? Right. We're so pleased to have had the chance to meet with you here uh, at the uh, Aspen Health Festival uh, to talk to you about these issues. We want to thank you for all of your work over the course of your career. More to come. And thank you for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. And to our listeners and our viewers, remember, you can sign up to hear more about our shows. Our address is chcradio.com. Dr. Davis, thank you again. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc., The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on healthcare or its affiliated entities.